Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage, where I continue my chat with former U.S. diplomat Sid Goldsmith, who was in the U.S. State Department in Hong Kong from 1965 to 1968, so over the period of the Hong Kong riots in 66 and 67. Last week, we heard how he survived an attack by rioters, possibly due to speaking Cantonese. Sid Goldsmith has written his recollections of the riots in his book, On the Brink, An American Diplomat Relives 1967's Darkest Days. It was a time of roadside bombs, transport strikes, communist insurgency and an unpopular colonial government. In this week's programme, Sid tells me about some of the housing conditions here at that time and those annoying urban councillors like Elsie Elliott, later Elsie Too, who wanted better working rights. Sid Goldsmith is also an accomplished flautist. You know, the the resettlement state there, I'd been in one, actually, on a council investigation. 120 square feet, five people, three bunks on one side, one on the other. Probably a, a medium-sized dresser drawer for everything people owned. And maybe two people could stand up and get dressed at, at the same time. And oftentimes these were people who didn't even know each other. Wow, yeah, that's quite difficult living. Yeah, I mean, you know, that was still the days when there were people, laborers rented hot pads. They had eight hours on that hot pad, and they had their shift work, and that's how long they got to use the, the bedroom that they had. There was plenty of discontent to spark these riots. And where were you living at the time? Oh, my. I was up on Coombe Road. We had a four-story apartment there. I lived in a two-bedroom apartment. I might just as well have been on a Los Angeles, quiet, grassy hillside, far, far away from all this. The the, the contrast was, was stunning between how much of Hong Kong lived and how the colonial government lived, the compradors. I mean, there was a very wealthy Chinese society in in Hong Kong. I would say the most likely connection were the compradore families, Eurasians, wealthy marriages. And so they were a part of society. I'll, I'll leave it to others at the time to judge the honest level of acceptance. There was a middle class like the hikers that I, that I went with because they had, they were the owners of small factories. And they hired ladies, actually, that I met on the trails who carried the women's clothing up to their homes, beaded it, brought it back on shoulder poles, and were very happy that they were not inside the factories doing this. Mm. So they would, so to describe, what would they do with the women's clothes? Yeah, basically, what they were given was the was the sort of half finished or three quarters finished garment, and they were the ones 
who sewed on the beads by hands because beaded garments were very popular in that day. So that's what they would do. They would go off and bead these garments and then yeah. deli- deliver them again. Yeah, they, in fact, very specifically, because I remember the trail we were hiking when I ran into some of these people. There was a trail uh, that you got onto quite close to the Shatin Station. And we we climbed up this trail. It's quite narrow trail. I mean, two people would have to maneuver to get by each other. We went up in a straight line, and we ran into the ladies coming down. And I asked them, and they said, no, there's no road to their village. This was Hong Kong 50 years ago, not today, with its really quite impressive road system. I, I took the best back from Law Wu the other day. <laughs> well, not Law Wu, but Shengsui. I had to take the train to Shengsui. Yeah, it would have been interesting. Also, you'd have had factories within homes. Yeah, that's all the space they could afford. Mm. I suppose if they were able to sell their wares, they did do better than a dollar a day, but if they could expand, that's what they were paying their laborers, more or less. Your actual people who you would hike with were factory owners? Generally, or or some business people. There weren't any government servants among them. I probably avoided arguments. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, did you mix at all with the British government? That was interesting. It was extraordinarily stratified. In, In essence, I was offered access to Emerus Davies, who was the assistant political uh, advisor assigned by the Foreign Office. And he was very helpful and, and very candid. I mean, one of the big clues that he gave me was that there was a three days of marches up to to Government House before the, the so-called Bloody Garden Road Massacre, when the police were told not to allow more than 20 people at a time, and the the demonstrations challenged it. He told me that they only expected one day of marches up to Government House. It it was still unclear at that time, even though some of the local communist leadership arrived to present their petition. They arrived in Mercedes-Benz's. You know, how determined these people were to carry on the challenge since they could organize school kids from the left-leaning schools. So what happened in Garden Road? This is one of the most interesting periods to think about when you use this term of communist-inspired riots. Week-long street demonstrations whipped up by pro-communist mobs take British government house as their target. Posters demand the governor's resignation. Thousands of Chinese shouting Maoist slogans urge an end to British rule in the Crown Colony. The inevitable result, violence. The mobs battle police, throwing stones, bottles, anything. Both rioters and police were injured. The retaliation was swift and effective. Tear gas and riot guns loaded with wooden bullets dispersed the crowd. More than 400 arrested in the seven-day reign of terror and anarchy. Most of the hoodlums were youths. They tore up a Union Jack, smashed windows, and overturned a car, setting it on fire. A British delegation is probing the current crisis. The timeline I see is is this. You you have a factory dispute in April because the factory changed the rules, basically reducing workers' income. The workers wanted to negotiate. The factory decided to sack half the workforce. And so then the demonstrations began. Peaceful? But then the police came in, 
And essentially, they took, and the leftists claim, and I think they were right on this one, they clearly took the side of management because the workers blocked the gates so that the factory couldn't ship, and the police broke it up. We're talking about total spontaneity, workers' grievance, typical of many disputes going on at the time in which the government simply didn't interfere and management held the upper hand any time they could fire anybody on one day's notice, one day's pay, under the labor law. Then comes May 11th, and these demonstrations have been growing bigger with rocks and bottles, but still right in that area. And then May 11th, as far as I was concerned, maybe it's you know personal preference because I was caught in it, I think was the first big riot. Then around May 14th or so, you see in the newspapers the first reports of the formation of a Confederation of Trade Unions Struggle Committee. And then you have three days of marches up to the governor's house. And by that time, you have you see not only local communist organization, but well-dressed people, not, no scraggly laborers on these marches. And the crowd estimate was about 3,000 people going up. Very orderly, white shirts, almost always, and trousers. People who looked like they would be clerks in the, in the communist stores, for example. They had, you know, huge commercial networks. So they could bring out well-dressed people. And then the government said, no more. If you want a petition, no more than 20 people at a time. They gathered in Garden Road. They challenged this. Then you have these pictures of blood everywhere. Some of it was obviously real. I mean, let's, the police weren't perfect, but an awful lot of it was fake. This was called in the left-wing press the Garden Road Massacre. And not only that, they did it credibly enough that was real concern about where the popular mood was. The Hong Kong government was not popular. It was colonial government, no elected representation, really. A couple of people on the urban council, including Elsie Elliott, later Elsie Two, and Brooke Bernacci, who were considered to be a real pain in the you-know-what by the government. And then it becomes the all-circle struggle committee. You only get the first reaction from Beijing in a People's Daily editorial on June 3rd. My gut feeling to these days, and everything is that period seems to be open to interpretation still, is that essentially it was the Hong Kong loyalists wagging the tail, wagging the Beijing dog. And then the people in Beijing felt they had to react with these demands, and so they took them up. The interesting factor is that none of the demands by the local communists had to do with a labor dispute. It was fire the police perpetrators, formal apology from the governor, compensate the families of the injured, and release the arrested. At least those are the ones I remember now, 50 years later. Did you mention Elsie Elliott and... Brooke Bernacci. Brooke Bernacci. They were both urban councillors. They were urban councillors. The one elected group, I think uh, in 65 election, something like 6,500 of the estimated 220,000 
people who would be considered eligible to vote on then colonial voting standards. So that's who they were elected by. And as I understand it, essentially their responsibilities for garbage collection and for the city hall and those kinds of events. Elsie Elliott only died recently. I mean, she yes, was... Yes, I know. You know she was 102, God yes, bless her. Yes, and um, so I talked to her. I never met uh, Mr. Bonacci, but um, he was a fellow urban councillor. Yes, yes. They, they, they were both elected, and they both strongly advocated reform of the labour laws. They, I mean, they thought they were so criminal that, that Elsie Elliott, at the time of the Star Ferry riots apparently gathered a 20,000 signature petition to urge the government not to allow the rise, only in the first-class fare, get you, not, not, not the, the hoi polloi's fare, you know, of, of five Hong Kong cents. But she was accused by the harder right, I guess you'd call it, the equivalent of, of, of instigating those riots. And... Of course, the Legislative Council and and the Executive Council, these were selected businessmen, whatever. The Colonial Secretary was John Copperthwaite, and they had no trouble at all whatsoever in convincing him that, you know, we've got to maintain our competitiveness in the international market. If we don't export, uh, we fall apart. That was the government position that, you know, the labor was available, they'd work for nothing, let them happen, let them, let them have their jobs. Being here in Hong Kong, how much did the Vietnam War affect you? Affected me, not at all. It's interesting because at that time, our primary interests in Hong Kong were as a rest and recreation point for the Vietnam soldiers and, of course, the China-watching operation. But otherwise, the best description of U.S. interests in Hong Kong might have been the instructions we got early on. And they were very clear. Give the Hong Kong government no reason whatsoever to hope that if an attempt was made on Hong Kong that we would come to their assistance. Oh, I see. So I think they realized very early on that they were in it alone. I arrived in... uh, October 65, and stayed on until uh, June 68. I had all the riots to myself. (laughs) Well, not quite like that, but I mean, I lived through the whole thing. And still, for all the chaos, there was no doubt in my mind ever that Hong Kong was the most exciting city in the world at that time. And my education was in New York, so it's, it's a fair comparison. What did you do during your leisure time? Oh, followed my passion. I played the flute. I was trained as a, a, a flutist, not not in the conservatory, but in New York. I uh, studied privately with the best known and, and, and best flutist of, of the 50 years that he, he was active. Virtually every flutist in every major orchestra for decades would, had studied with him at some time or another. And his name? Julius Baker. Puccini was Latin and Wagner Teutonic, and birds are incurably philharmonic. Suburban yards and rural vistas are filled with avian Andrews sisters. The skylark sings around delay, the crow sings the road to Mandalay. The nightingale sings a lullaby, 
and the seagull sings a gullaby. That's what shepherds listened to in Arcadia, before somebody invented the radio. But I also had the pleasure of playing with Jeffrey Gilbert when he came to Hong Kong. And I think you could say that Jeffrey Gilbert was probably the, the, the best of the English flutists and a wonderful, wonderful human being. you play? At City Hall. Almost always it was City Hall. It came about quite extraordinarily. I mean, the process started when I got off the ship and was met at the pier by Hal Christie, an aging consul, we should say. And he said, what do you like to do in your spare time, just as you had asked? And I said, I'm a flutist. And some weeks later, he said, I've got a bit of a surprise for you. I said, oh, what is it? He arranged me to meet Ariga Foa who at that time was conducting the orchestra. And so what, the Hong Kong Philharmonic? The or? Hong Kong Philharmonic. And Fo obviously took Christie's word for it, and he knew who I studied with, and without asking any questions, he said, I want you to do the Bach B minor suite with the orchestra. And of course, then it just progressed. Moya Ray, a New Zealander, whose husband headed the shipyard down by Quarry Bay. They had come over, and she was the doyen of piano teachers and, and singers. And so I started doing a lot of concerts at the city hall. It pretty much stopped during the riots. But once things calmed down a little bit, there it went again. It was so much fun playing with these people. Who's your favorite composer? All of them. <laughs> I'm a Bach lover, among other things, but in fact, my most recent uh, three albums are all solo flute pieces covering the period from about 1923, a Frenchman by the name of Farouk, to 2015. I insist that what I record is listenable, but otherwise it's, it's all contemporary music these days. So you play at City Hall here in Hong Kong. You said that you would sometimes go over to Deepwater Bay. Did you have your own sort of match-ed beach hut or anything like oh, that? Oh, actually, it was 
at Big Wave Bay that my wife told me she was pregnant. Oh. Just beautiful, sunny, big waves coming in and so forth. Deepwater Bay was something else. In those days, I guess we were an important country, and we got lots of invitations. And I had some friends with a 40-plus foot yacht over in Deepwater Bay, and they invited us out all the time. So, yes, I did get to Deepwater Bay. <laughs> and uh, I don't know whether they ever got to any of my concerts, but I got to their yacht a lot. <laughs> in the roads, what kind of private cars would there have been in the mid-1960s? Trucks on some routes... You would find the Peninsula's Rolls Royces from time to time, mostly diesel fume spouting taxi cabs. But I think most of what private cars there were demonstrated the real gap between the wealthy and everybody else because they were very highly taxed German luxury cars for the most part. The taxis were Benzes. Because, I mean, now, of course, they're LPG. They compressed gas. Yeah. Yeah, a very good idea. It wasn't that way in those days. In terms of Hong Kong's development, uh, I mean, what do you think about the fact that large parts of the harbour have been reclaimed? Oh, I was sort of sad. I was looking for this huge panoply of junks and fishing boats and ships of all kinds and wondering how the Star Ferry ever got through all this unscathed. In 65... There were thousands. In fact, we used to go out on these little boats and be treated to Cantonese culture shows. You know, they had the, the boats with food would come around. You would get your food. You'd go down to the typhoon shelter. And, and it was wonderful entertainment then. I was a bit nostalgic going over on this very smooth and very short crossing. And I say, where's everybody who's supposed to be in this harbor? And they're not there any longer, at least not. Not the other night when I went across. In terms of spying these days or diplomatic service, I mean, have things changed? I mean, the fact is, of course, that, um, you know, the border is <laughs> completely different. There is, uh, in terms of we're now a special administrative region, we're part of China since 1997. But if we look at 20 years since the handover, from what you can gather, I mean, how does, you know, are we still... Are the Americans still China watching from Hong Kong? The honest answer is that I can't gather. But I do know from the newspapers that the network in China, there were executions. Twelve, twelve apparently, New York Times reported 12 were executed between 2010 and 2012. And the network was essentially broken. It's almost a story, you know, I've seen, it's almost like a story that's gone under the radar. And these were all people who were sort of employed by the CIA? I only have access to the Times report. I have left the Foreign Service a long time ago. <laughs> but I gave a courtesy message and dropped in on the Consul General and so forth. His deputy did give me a message, you know, asking me if I would be careful with classified material. And so when I spoke before the, the FCC, I said, you know... 
This is so exciting. I feel like the president for a day, and if you'll live with that as president, I declare that anything I say is unclassified, um, which it is. My information is, is 50 years old, and I have no contact that would tell me what's going on today. Uh, I think we can assume that we do want to know what's going on in China. And that's about as that's about all I know. I'm not trying to be cagey about this. I'm an old, you know, by Chinese standards, I'm 80 years old. I'm not in that picture anymore. Have you brought it with you? Are you playing here in Hong Kong? No, I'm not playing in Hong Kong. But what I did bring is a disc of a recording of contemporary flute duets that I just made with the principal flutist of the Taiwan National Symphony. And I would love for somebody at Noxos Records to hear it because I think that's the kind of music that they perform. And, uh, you know, the principal flutist is probably the most famous flutist in Hong Kong. He's terrific. I'm not. Um, but I think I'm going to walk over there and, and say, hey, how would you like to listen to music for 10 minutes? <laughs> well, good luck with that. Oh, thank you very much. My thanks to former U.S. diplomat Sid Goldsmith sharing his recollections of life in Hong Kong at the time of the 1967 riots. Sid Goldsmith's book is called On the Brink, An American Diplomat Relives 1967's Darkest Days. Next week, Radio 3 DJ Steve James joins me to mark 30 years of broadcasting in Hong Kong. Let's start from the very beginning Though there's plenty of places to start If you want to get around You can get all over town Just by stepping underground Onto the MTR MTR? MTR KC Yard said Just follow me Jun Wan Tai Wo Hao Kwai Hing Kwai Fong Lai King And Mei Fu Lai Chi Kok Jun Shao Wan Sham Shui Po And Tai Chi Do James Trains Shekip Mei Kao Lung Tong Lok Fu Wong Tai Sin Diamond Hill Joy Hong And on to Kao Lung Bay And now to Kok Kung Tong and Lam Teen And at Yao Tong Change for Kowari Fortress Hill and Teen Hao Tung Lo Wan In English Causeway Bay Wan Chai Next for me at Mao Roll Tea Central And then you have a choice Chung But I like Chin Sa Choi Jordan We're off to Yamate Hong Kong And here we are again We've returned to Prince Edward Road 
So if you want to get around, just get yourself down to the MTR. DJ Steve James of Radio 3. Have a good Christmas. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. <laughs>